0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cultural Studies podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is...
1: Justin Lewis.
0: Justin, wonderful to see you. We had a little gossip about families and my brilliant career and my useful citizenship before we started recording, and you were very thoughtful and supportive, and I appreciate that. But sad to say we're going to talk more about things to do with you now. And my opening gambit is to ask, what's dynamizing, propelling, retarding, annoying, preoccupying,
1: interesting you these days? Oh well, I suppose there's a lot of answers to that question. I but I, let me start with a with a sort of work related one. Um, uh, as you know, Toby, uh, I'm these days. I'm very much involved in kind of the creative industries and innovation in the creative industries and specifically thinking about how you create what used to be i suppose called an alternative economic strategy for the creative industries um and we're fortunate in having a a reasonably large amount of grant income to be able to to try out some some interesting things so very preoccupied with that and and i suppose aware at the moment that there's a lot of debate about especially in in academic circles outside academic circles not so much but within academic circles about the creative industries as a as a term the kind of economic turn in the creative economy um a a lot of debate about that and so i suppose i've been thinking a lot about where we are and what my team do in relation to that because um I'm kind of aware that we might be denounced by many as sort of, you know, embracing this kind of, you know, e- economic turn towards the creative industries. I don't think that's what we're doing at all. But uh, I, I I suppose I'm, I've been thinking about that dichotomy of, you know, you're either you're either sort of full blown Richard Florida who it's the creative economy, everybody. Or uh, you adopt a very critical position in relation to that and reject it. And I guess we're in neither place and trying to figure out, um, as I said before, kind of alternative economic strategy for the creative industry. So so that's that's been a, a sort of very much a work preoccupation. I mean, it's an interesting time in the UK We're in the dying days, I think confidently you can say now the dying days of a conservative government. Um uh, who just lost a couple more by-elections last night. Um, and uh, you have an incoming Labour administration that seems it's doing its best to commit to doing absolutely nothing at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and and I guess we're all wondering how much of that is just an electoral strategy and how much of it is actually true. So I guess we'll see. Um but so, yeah, that's that's a sort of interesting time. And I think everybody is now behaving as if this is the last year of the Conservative government um, and thinking about what the next government will be like. So, so in the UK, it's an interesting moment. Um, obviously, there's an awful lot going on in the rest of the world, uh, of course. Um, but I know that you've spoken with other people on this podcast about that. So I'm, I probably won't go there.
0: In terms of the UK politics stuff, I guess I'm haunted by 1992 when the Tories were thought to be out for the count and won, and the front bench of the Labour Party in politics is so uninspiring that I do worry. But then again, um, who knows what the relevance is nowadays of tabloid newspapers, which was very significant, 20, 30 years ago but it perhaps is of diminishing importance
1: now yeah i mean it's certainly of diminishing importance with people under the age of i don't know 40 50 30 mm. um you know the probably still of influence amongst people over 60 who are much more likely to read those newspapers um and, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence. I'm not saying that there's a completely clear linear causal line here, but it's not a complete coincidence that the, uh, the big determinant now of how you will vote in Britain, by far, demographically, by far, it's not class, it's not education, it's not any of the things it used to be, it's age. Um, you know, the proportion of people under the age of 40 who are going to vote Conservative is tiny it's really tiny and um while they've been losing support in every demographic the only demographic where they are more or less at parity is over 60s 60, over 65 so um and that's the you know that's the age group that still reads newspapers um and for me the things are not unconnected uh because it's very hard you know when you look at their record it's very hard to see and, and the dominant narrative around them how you could actually be motivated to think yes we need five more years of this um so yeah we'll see um yeah i mean the the labour front bench are playing it uh to say they're playing it safe is kind of an understatement it, that, i think they've got the idea that if we commit to absolutely anything it'll be ripped apart so we're going to commit to nothing at all now you know that's clearly not credible. You know, they're saying they're going to create growth in the UK. You can only do that by borrowing money or using, getting tax revenue to create new forms of investment or whatever they do, but you can't do it by carrying on doing what this government's doing, which is all they're really planning to do. So um, something will have to shift. We'll see. Getting but back. I don't think it's like 92. I honestly think the mm-hmm. narrative is fixed. I, I think people look around and they think, What yeah? That key question that I think Richard Sunak was asked, um, I don't know whether it was about six months ago or a year ago. Yeah, what is better in Britain now than when the Conservatives took power in in 14 years ago? And he struggled to answer. And I think when when everybody in Britain thinks about that, they think, well, the health service is worse, the trains are worse, all of the infrastructure is worse. There's sewage in the rivers and the seas. Yeah, everything is worse, and it's very hard. To offer you otherwise.
0: A, a week ago, Justin and I went to my daughter's school, which is opposite Highgate Cemetery in North London. And I was a bit early to pick her up. So I thought, I'll go to the library. Ho, ho, ho. So there's a rather wonderful, I guess, Victorian Edwardian brick monstrosity that is the Highgate Library next to the cemetery it doesn't exist anymore but inside its locked gates is a sign that's barely legible saying we now have a pop-up library which is a bus that will be parked outside for 10 hours a week
1: yeah well local authorities in britain are completely broke and i mean it was seen as a sort of soft bit that the osborne cameron government felt that this was an area they could really really cut um, and uh, so local government has been absolutely decimated the last 14 years. So, yeah, any services that lo- provided by local government, I mean, they're cut to the bone. Um, so, yeah, libraries have now become a, a kind of a luxury in our current well, I wonder
0: whether one could extrapolate from that to the overburden of the National Health Service, and instead of talking about mismanagement or insufficient funds or whatever, one talked about the fact that people are using the NHS as a public place
1: to have someone listen to them and help them. That's possible because so many of the other public spaces have disappeared. Um, and, and, you know, you whether it's, you know, youth clubs and, you know, all sorts of spaces that existed public spaces, they are disappearing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's very plausible. Getting back to the first response you had to my
0: opening question, Prof, the last two podcast recordings I did, maybe two of the last three, were with people who work in things called department or institute or whatever of cultural and creative industries. So I asked them, what's the difference between cultural and creative? Are they the same thing or aren't they? And I wonder if you could help us out with some sort of precision about how these terms intersect or
1: is it not possible to do so well i i I wouldn't i wouldn't want to pretend that there's any kind of hard clear definable distinction between the two i think it's kind of a matter of nuance um i mean for me they're actually pretty interchangeable um because i see them as both having broad meaning I think the the word cultural industries is more often used by those that want to invoke a broader dichot, a broader kind of landscape that includes uh, all of those cultural activities that, you know, that are perhaps more in the subsidised sector. Although, again, that's a sort of problematic distinction, our film and TV industry, which is seen very much on the commercial end is also very heavily subsidised, as as you well know. Toby, I remember you talking about that a long time ago, and and that remains completely true today through tax credits. Um, So, uh, But I think there's that that idea that the sort of cultural industries are the more subsidised end and the creative industries are the more uh, commercial end. I particularly don't find that particularly useful. For me, they're all part of the same thing that you can identify and there are different levels of commercialization or subsidy uh, across both but nearly everybody is involved in some way in some form of commercial activity and few are completely outside the world of of subsidy Uh, so um, I I think an economic distinction doesn't really hold up Um, so I for me it's a it's a it's a large domain and i I I guess I, I sort of find squabbling about definitions not particularly helpful as long as we can kind of be clear about what it is we mean by it. And for me, both of them invoke quite a broad landscape from, you know, from craft to, you know, computer games.
0: Right, right. And perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the work that you briefly mentioned that you and others are doing in Cardiff in Wales, I give some, I ask for some context because about 40% of listeners are in the United States and Britain, the rest are in other parts of the world, but there's nothing like a majority living in the UK. So if you could explain a wee bit about Wales and, and what its resonance is with the cultural sector in Britain and what your group is up to
1: that would be great sure i mean just a bit of context i suppose i mean wales as um wales is a devolved nation of the uk uh so it has its own government that has considerable powers over things like you know health education you know key areas of government um so uh, you, we, you know wales has its own uh political identity um Clearly, very it, it, its its own cultural identity. Um, so, Wales, as a specifically South Wales, was famously part of the Industrial Revolution. In fact, it was the world's first industrial nation. Um, the first place where more people were employed in industry than in agriculture was Wales. Um, you know, through coal, you know, metal uh, m- mining and manufacture. Um, uh, so the Industrial Revolution came to Wales early and big uh, and very much defined the nation, I'd say. Um, now, of course, in the last sort of 50, 20 years, uh, all of that has changed. Manufacturing is no longer uh, the economic powerhouse that it was at all. Mining is non-existent. All the mines in Wales are closed. Um, and and the other things that define wales like methodism i mean methodism was was very clearly a sort of um method a certain kind of i suppose leftward leaning uh community based religion uh that was very very powerful in in wales uh and i think fed into its kind of left of center politics um but again that's all gone i mean the most of the methodist churches uh, the chapels are empty or closed, not all of them, but, you know, they're nothing like the force they were. So the whole landscape or what what in Wales, what we call Knevin, which is place, but also the consciousness of a place has has changed. And uh, one of the things that's taken its place to some extent is the creative industries. So in Cardiff, for example, 15 percent, over 15 percent of businesses in Cardiff are in the creative industries. Now that's a huge shift. So that's, I suppose, the context, and out of that, um, what we've done is to argue that for a regional area like ours that's done actually very well in terms of creative industries, particularly in film and TV, I mean, an awful lot of telly that a lot of people will be aware of, you know, titles like Doctor Who or Sherlock um, or, you know, his Dark Materials, Discovery of is Sex Education, all made in Wales, um, and... Uh, so Wales is, is, does very, very well in that sense. But it's an economy based on small independent companies. You know, we don't have any Disneys or, you know, we're, we're absolutely not Hollywood. Um, and so how, I guess the question for us is, how do you make an economy made up of small independent businesses that are very fragile, that have no budgets for innovation, that have no budgets to do R&D? How did you get those, that ecosystem to compete in a very, very difficult global market with lots of digital disruption. So that's kind of what we're doing is to try to create that ecosystem. So we support small independent companies to do R&D, to do innovation, um, to make their businesses more sustainable, to create intellectual property, so that we're not in, in so we're not a, a show and go economy, You know, we're not a backdrop for Hollywood movies, where you know whoever it is, Universal come in, makes a film, uses Welsh crew, and then takes off again. You know that's fine. It's you know it's a one-off economic hit. You know um, boost, but but the none of nothing stays with you to to an economy where actually you own and you grow. So you 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 work with companies based in Wales, from Wales, about Wales, to uh, allow them to become. Uh, more resilient in this kind of economy so that's that's what we're trying to do um and uh we've been very fortunate in getting uh significant grant support to be able to do that so it's a really interesting area and it's one where i guess it comes back to, to my earlier point really which is what i think we're trying to do is think about okay what do we want the creative industries to look like you know easy to do a critique but how do you change things so that the creative industries is doing what we think they should do. And I guess that's what we're trying to do. You know, think about how we make them more inclusive and diverse, how we make them commit to um, environmental sustainability, those sorts of things. And this involves
0: what in the United States would be called re-granting.
1: Is that right? Kind of. I mean, so we have money that we give out, uh so i mean we we've we've we ran a program which we call cluster which is welsh for cluster um and uh that's now coming to a close um and through that we gave out over three million in grants small grants to companies to do innovation and we're doing something very similar in, in the project we're doing now which is called media cymru um or media wales to translate um and uh but that's absolutely only a part of what we do. If, uh, and that's, I think, something we've very clearly learned. If all we did was say, okay, everybody, we've got some pots of DOSH, come and apply and we'll give you some, that, w- that would be spectacularly ineffective because most small companies, you know, they've had no training in how you do R&D, You then then had no training in how you can most effectively innovate and create something new. So we have created a whole support system around that. So people don't just apply for money; they get money, but they also then become part of a whole program that it works to support what they do, um, and you know works to try and give them the maximum chance to succeed in what they do. So uh, the idea really is is to kind of t- so the whole ecosystem gets better at that kind of thing, rather than just say, we're going to pick a few winners. So that's the that's the ethos, really. So uh, yes, it does involve giving people money because, and really mostly what that's for, Toby, is to give people time. You know, unlike most R&D in the STEM areas where an awful lot of the money will be spent on kit, for our companies, it's mostly bent, spent on giving them the time to do the work mm-hmm. because, you know, they... They need to be paid for what they do. This is taking time out of their normal business. So uh, they, you know, they need to be paid to be able to do this. And this allows them to do that. And what form does the other kinds of support take? So a, a few things. So so currently now we do everybody who becomes part of any of our grant funding programs will, uh, we work very closely with Cardiff Metropolitan University and they have a very strong user-centered design team. And uh, everybody who uh, enrolls with us becomes enrolled into working with that team. And they take part in workshop, but also individual one-to-ones to to really think through what it is they want to do and whether their approach to it fully considers how best to get to where they want to be. So so in a way, what we're looking for is, so people might come in and say, oh, I've got a great idea. I'm going to create an app that's going to do this. And what they will do is say, well, hang on, take a few steps back. What problem is it you're trying to solve? And actually, what's what's the best way to solve that? And it may not be an app. It may be something completely different. Um, So it kind of takes them back to first principles a bit. And we also bring in another company that gives them support and advice around commercializing anything that they create. Uh, so that they can think about that from the beginning um, so it's not it 's absolutely not grant funding, which is here 's some money, go away, do a project, then go on to the next thing it's here 's some support to allow you to create something that significantly changes the way that you do business and you know the, the your future income capacity
0: One of the things that you 've been very critical of in your work is advertising and its role in perverting culture. What happens if one of these entities is an ad agency? What do you do? Do you say, uh, good luck and see you later, but I'm sorry, I've written
1: books denouncing you so far? <laughs> well, um, probably for, for, for... You know, it's probably a very good thing that I am not in complete control of who gets, you know, the funding. So, yeah, <laughs> we have proper committees of people, you know, from diverse backgrounds who will consider, you know, who we should support. So it's really not all down to me. But what I, sh- what I would say is that our criteria for what we fund, um, we um, we absolutely have an economic criteria because... Yeah, you know, somebody could have a brilliant idea, but if they have no way of sustaining it beyond our mm. grant income, then mm-hmm. there's not mm-hmm. much point in them doing it. So economic criteria is one of them, but equally as important are social and cultural criteria. And if you come to us with a proposition that might make you shed loads of money, mm. but will make the world a demonstrably worse place, we would not fund it. Right because you would score zero on those criteria. Mm-hmm. So while, while it, you know it's clear that some of the projects we fund are stronger on the economic aspect and some are much stronger on the social and cultural aspect, that's true, um, we try and make sure that nothing we fund would clearly have a negative impact on things. And I think funding an ad agency to more... So, for example, an ad agency might come up with a really effective way of exploiting new spaces where there's not advertising and filling it with advertising now they may make loads of money out of that but is that going to make the world a better place demonstrably not i mean clearly not that Mm. is clearly negative so we, we wouldn't fund it so for us we build into our whole funding criteria both social and economic goods you know and i guess being in wales and wales the, one of the landmark things that the welsh government did was pass its um uh, well-being of future generations act and that means that everything that uh, the welsh government does has to consider the wells being of future generations i think it's a great concept and i think that's something that we're also inform what we do you know will this inform will this improve the well-being of future generations is a question that we would ask of anything we'd fund and you know more the world clearly doesn't do that we have quite enough advertising well we don't need more of it so yeah uh i i think we have and, and again it comes back to my earlier point i think it what we're trying to do is think about well how would we like the creative industries to be and we would like them to tell stories that have heart have soul have wit and and aren't just about selling stuff mm. so you
0: guys are not agnostic and not expected to be
1: well no and i mean our i mean we have and again some people might regard these as contradictory i guess we don't i mean we have sort of four pillars to our work we talk about green fair global growth and and uh, but for us all of those things are a piece there's no point in us uh, simply replicating the inequities that exist in the creative industries. We have to think about how to address that. And we've worked pretty hard to do that. I mean, just to tell you a quick story about that. Look, when we first started doing this, when I first started all this, uh, um, we held a, a workshop. First thing we did, it was called an Ideation Day, where we said to anybody, come and learn how to do research and development, innovation. You know, anybody can come, freelancers, small companies, come along. So, uh, so we did all that and we used all the kind of language that you would expect to be used around that. And then we turned up and then 95% of people in the room were male. And we thought, oh my God, this is not the sector we know. Um, uh, What's going wrong here? And it became clear to us very quickly that all of the language around R&D, all the assumptions around it are highly gendered. You know, they're, it, partly because they come from a very gendered world, which are kind of STEM factories, if you like, you know, manufacturing places that are like that. Um, and and that carries over. People just made assumptions. that Oh, you're talking about only that. You're basically interested in new technology. That's what you're interested in. And we we had to then completely roll back and say, no, we're interested in innovation. It could be a new way of telling stories. It's not necessarily around technology. It might use technology, but it might not. Um, yeah, and there are some creative industry sectors where it clearly isn't about technology it's about rethinking the way that you do things so um, we, it, that caused us to completely rethink everything we did all the language about what we did the way we describe what we did and how we interacted with lots of communities so we took advice from people who know much better than we do about how you do these things and we took their advice and we, we acted on it and that completely shifted things by our last funding round uh of that program uh, around 60% of projects were led by women. So it was a huge shift. Um, uh, but, sorry, this is, this is getting a bit of a long way from your question, but I guess it, it, it's it's trying to think about how you would want to shift the dial and address problems in the creative industries. And we've been given a, a little bit of an opportunity, a tiny little bit of an opportunity to try no, to do that. No, I think that's a great answer. Thank you. Now, is research
0: part of this, not research about being innovative in the particular sector but research in general about the creative industries
1: yeah absolutely i mean i mean uh, to be honest early on i think we spent an awful lot of time just trying to mar- answer a kind of research question which was how do you do RD innovation the creative industries in the landscape that we live in and that's trying to address social as well as economic concerns so There almost wasn't time. We we were just we recorded everything we did. We measured everything we did, but we didn't quite know what we're going to do with it. And I think we've only really started to do that in earnest more recently. But no, research is absolutely a part of it because I think, yeah, what we're doing I'd like to think is germane to all of the debates and all the writing that that exists in the creative industries, which you know I've been familiar with for a long time. I mean, I you know my first book was about the creative industries um and uh so it's i think it research is absolutely part of that um i think a lot of the research we do has both academic and policy sort of outputs and the way we write for policy reports is probably different than the way we write for academic reports um but that's also something we're very interested in. I mean, we want to see evidence led policy interventions that are, you know, that genuinely take seriously some of the commitments that people have to make around things like climate and, and uh, social values. And Prof,
0: going back, 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 uh, I take you to the 1986 87 football season when foot- Fulham Football Club came 18th in the third division. So it was a happy time in our lives. But (laughs) at that time, or around that time, you were working for something that doesn't exist because you made it unsustainable, namely the Greater London Council, which (laughs) was, in those days, a really very innovative local government enterprise in the capital. And Justin was a very important part of that. And one of the things you were working on was stimulating the culture industries, And stimulating them, not just so that they would grow and become wealthy, but so they would include women and they would include people of colour and they would include working class people. I mean, inclusion was something that was a watchword for you four decades ago. I think it's fair to say.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I I wouldn't want I mean, you're very kind about my role and all that. I think my role was fairly minor in all of that. But, um, you know, I I was fairly young when I joined the GLC, but it was. Undoubtedly, a really exciting time in the sense that it was truly experimental and there was a genuine attempt to, first of all, I I suppose, rethink what the creative industries and cultural industries are, but in ways that was genuinely inclusive and uh, an antidote from, I I suppose, years of well-intentioned traditional arts funding that clearly was essentially subsidizing People already had lots of money as entertainment, really, is what it was doing um, and and rethinking what all that was. So, yeah, it was a very exciting time. I mean, um, reflecting on that, I I think that the GLC was and and I did a piece of research for the GLC to right to the end of that, which looked at the impact of all of those programs and found that on things like gender and race, there was a lot of success um, in terms of diversifying uh, participants, producers and audiences. But on social class, much less so. And I think that probably remains, uh, social class remains a huge issue. And I think cultural funding. Um, And and I I do have a bit of a problem with some of those who kind of vociferously argue against the sort of uh, creative economy turn kind of harking back to the arts, I suppose, or a version of the arts that is very, was very exclusionary. Um, through, you know, things that Bourdieu and others have written about to, to the cultural capital. But I, I you know, I, I don't think we should ever forget that.
0: And so that sounds as though there are some things you learnt in those early days that remain relevant, not just to you, but to the problematic of the cultural sector.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I've, I've like to think my thinking has evolved a since then, although you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with with some of the things that I wrote back then. I just think the pictures probably changed. That you know, there's been a massive digital revolution in the time since. Gosh, you know, when I wrote that book, uh, computers were this kind of new thing. You know, and if you had a hard drive, wow, you were really, you know, that was cutting edge. Um, uh, I, I, actually, I wrote most of them, in fact, on a computer which had two five-inch floppy disks, it had no hard drive, uh, on a program called WordStar. But anyway, that was, so it's a different era. Um, But uh, so clearly things have changed. But yeah, no, I think think that's true. Uh, But, you know, it's also true, and other people have written about this. I mean, the GLC was a very particular moment where I think it was a huge cultural experiment. But then after that, it was abolished, you know, as a tier of government. It was the one way to get rid of it was to abolish it, which is what happened. Um, and after that, there was a period of significant cutbacks in local authorities who wanted to do similar things. So really that whole revolution was stalled for quite a long time and has only been picked up again, albeit through a very different lens. But um, well, I suppose the Labour government did it to some extent in 1997 when they created the Department of um, uh, the dm d, d- DCMS, dcms um uh which was you know it was the era of cool britannia and all of that and it was culture
0: media and sport is the
1: acronym right yeah yeah Yeah. culture media and sport um and uh you know that was a clear shift back towards that in some form but they never really i think invested in the creative industries as part of an industrial strategy um which is what we've seen actually more recently so uh for whatever for better and words. The,
0: the, the funding for the initiative that you're involved in now does that come partly from the welsh government and partly from the uk government
1: mostly from the uk government actually okay. um uh, but it is supported by welsh government and also by the cardiff capital region who are a um kind of regional authority here um which is sort of the the 10 local authorities in and around Cardiff, but most of it comes from UK government through uh, UKRI, which is basically the research innovation programs, and all of the research councils sit under that. So it's through the research councils, basically.
0: So, this is one of these instances where cultural policy, as broadly construed, or industry policy, as broadly construed, has actually become has come under the wing of research funding which is nothing new in lots of fields of endeavor in the united states or in britain but a bit new in the arts and humanities and the soft social sciences or have i got that wrong
1: no i think you're completely right it's completely new uh you know when uh when the the government took the decision that the creative support for creative industries will be through the arts and humanities research council. You know, it was, it was a lot of money for the arts and humanities research mm. council to, mm. to suddenly have and a very different kind of program because it had economic, you know, development as part of it. And that's not some, not a terrain that they were particularly involved in. So this was a decisive shift. And I think there has been a decisive shift in research council funding in the UK towards what you might call research and innovation um, funding. Uh, So, yeah, but this was new, and I don't think we'd seen it before. And, indeed, when we bid for the fund that we got uh, more recently from UKRI, uh, we are the only kind of arts, humanities, social science-led bid to be successful under that programme. All of the others are in STEM areas.
0: STEM, science, technology, engineering, medicine...
1: Yeah. yeah. Wow. So
0: that is very interesting, and it's a great credit to you and your colleagues that that's happened. Uh, Prof, I had two more questions for you, if I may, and then I'd like to turn it over to you, lest there be things you want to subtract from or add to what we've already discussed. Sound okay? Absolutely. So the first question is to ask. Whether your publications over the last few years, some of which have involved working with computer scientists and have become some of them somewhat more mathematical than your earlier endeavors, whether and how they are influenced and influencing cultural studies.
1: Um, I mean, a while ago, Toby, and you'll you'll probably remember the piece. I know it's something we've discussed over the years, um, and that I always felt that cultural studies' preference for qualitative over quantitative research was misplaced. Mm-hmm. That I see the value of both quantitative and qualitative research, and I thought that the um, the, the antagonism towards quantitative research. As if somehow counting things was itself this kind of you know, bad ideological move, uh, I, I always thought was actually ridiculous um, and also disingenuous because an awful lot of the assumptions made by people in cultural studies are based on evidence that is self-evidently numerical. You know, you, you can't, if you talk about, you know, any social problem, then the amount that people suffer or don't suffer from it is important. So uh I, I I mean I wrote a piece a long time ago called What Counts in Cultural Studies that argue very strongly that there should be we 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 need to use both quantitative and qualitative research methods. And I've always tried to embrace that um because I think they're both you know, I think they're pretty neutral. You know, you can use them however you want to use them uh, and you can use them to do bad things or you can use them to do good things. Um, uh, and so I think that that methodological divide was unhelpful. Um, if I was going to be mean about it, I'd say that some people in the cultural studies side just were fairly innumerate. So actually struggled with uh, some of the quantitative data. Uh, others, you know, had critiques that I don't share, but, uh, but no, I've always felt that it was important to do that. I do think cultural studies as a concept has shifted hugely though, I think. And, and I know, yeah. I, I listened to your podcast with, um, my, uh, friend and former colleague, Satjali the other week. Uh, I don't know. He talked about this. Um, uh, I think cultural studies so when it began, uh, was, is very different from the cultural studies that we see now, whose sort of political edge, I think has been softened. I think I'd say now, um, because of its embrace of certain kinds of things. But yeah. Um but no, I would see I think the study of culture, you know, numbers are clearly important. And you've actually written I think a couple of book chapters as
0: well as a journal article explaining how numbers can be our friend. And I think the the point is well taken. I, I, I think
1: in, including books that you've edited, I think, Toby, as well, if I'm if I'm correct. Yeah.
0: Well, of course. There is the famous case of a book I edited on television studies where your contribution, when first provided, did not mention television.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you were very generous in pointing that out, very kindly. (laughs) Just a small point.
0: (laughs) But in all seriousness, I think it is one of the many, many major contributions you've made to show us how numbers can be our friend. Could I press you a little bit on what you just said with reference to Sat Jali and his discussion on this podcast series, namely that you see cultural studies as having changed and been politically blunted? I'm not asking you to name
1: names, but what are the tendencies that you see? I think there was a clear tendency where, um, you know, if you look at the work coming out of Birmingham, the work coming out of Birmingham was working, yeah, you know, out of Back in the 1980s and 70s, on all fronts, really, tackling questions of class and politics and power uh, in, in, in all its domains. Uh, whereas I think that started to shift. And, and I suppose there was what what you, know, what you might call the, the the audience turn where it became where that whole question of agency. I think sort of became almost a political point, which was that if you suggested that people were in any way persuaded to think something because of their encounter with media and creative industries, then you were denying people's agency and therefore you were a bad person. You were a kind of top down elitist person um, and agents sort of, making sure that we, we value the agency of all of those consumers of popular culture and all forms of culture was seen as the political priority. And that was a huge shift. Uh, and what that did was, I mean, for me, it was a odd thing to do because it implied for me saying that people have agency doesn't also um, doesn't mean that they have control and power over what they can consume. Uh, or, you know, what information is out there for them. And it may well be that you are very active in the construction of thoughts and narratives that do not work in your or your community's best interest. Um, and, I mean, yeah, just look around the world politically. Yeah, it's hard to deny that that's not going on. Um, uh, whereas I think that that turning cultural studies towards a kind of, I think, naive celebration of agency was uh was was problematic for me and my last question prof prior to throwing to you to
0: invite you to expand on or not things we've discussed is to ask you whether in your 35 years of publishing books and longer in terms of publishing Journal articles, as well as making numerous public intellectual interventions, be they policy oriented or be they stopping Satjali from speaking on network television.
1: <laughs>
0: what sorts of intellectual changes have you gone through?
1: I I think I, I think uh when I began, I was far more interested in what we would now call matters of kind of high theory than I am now I think a lot of the I got caught up in and yeah I engaged in debates around quite the, the sort of minutiae of theoretical differences between different kinds of theoretical approaches and positions which now I'm sort of less interested in um and much more interested in, I suppose, thinking about the practical value of what I do. So um, I remember again just in, invoking Sut, and and you know you'll be aware of this, you know, as someone who's also engaged in lots of different forms of expression. Um, the I remember Sut pointing out that when he created the Media Education Foundation, and you know he got more comments about a video that he produced than he'd ever got about anything he'd ever written. Um, and, yeah, I am aware that, um, yeah, the academic world is a fairly closed one. And, you know, I'm very keen, I suppose, and increasingly keen to try and and use what I've learned in that world to do things outside that world, I guess. and And that's because I've always felt a bit like that, but I suppose more and more as I've got older. I strongly recommend to you, if you've not seen it, the clip on YouTube of
0: David Bowie imitating Mick Jagger. Have you seen it? I've not seen it. It's fabulous. It's on Parkinson or some app program like that. And Bowie uh, tells us that he went to one of the Stones' first ever concerts when there were four people. And <laughs> one of them was a true subaltern son of a soil who shouted out, and this is 1961, yeah. something like that, right? Um, and someone shouts out to Mick, cut your bloody hair. And Bowie then imitates Mick saying, What and look like you. It is really fantastic. <laughs> and I say this because for those interested who want to look at what Justin's hair once looked like, I do urge you to seek out his notorious performance with the silenced sat on network television
1: what and look like you <laughs> i w- I'd wondered where you were going with that toby and now That's i know it. yeah <laughs> now you know but you do have to look at it because it is bowie is a very good mimic
0: so prof thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your
1: thoughts and my pleasure toby and you know and and thanks to you and uh yeah um and and probably worth just just saying before we finish that um, I, I think one of the things that I've definitely learnt from you is how important it is. I think you are unusual in that your work spans, you know, lots and lots of different traditions, approaches, fields, and uh, I think is much stronger for doing so. I see less and less of that, I guess, you know, as people become more and more part of, sort of very sort of specialist areas Um and you know that strongly influenced me and I just thought important to say. Well oh, thank you very much that's very kind.
0: It's been wonderful chatting.
1: Cheers Toby.